Very glad that you are here. Please, um, if you made the terrible mistake of coming in without a cup of coffee and now realize that you're stranded, don't worry. Do feel free. This is your church to get up and go and get some and come back. Um, it is a wonderful delight to continue in this series. We've had a series all year called For the City. And the intention has been that we would identify themes in the life of this city of Atlanta that matter to Atlanta, uh, but also we believe should matter to us as a community of faith. And so our, uh, our title for this morning's forum is Education for All God's Children. And uh, at the heart of that is a sense in which we believe that all children are or are God's children, that those are the, uh, the ones that we are called to love and to see as beloved. It's a real delight to, um, to have uh, either side of me uh, people and leaders in our city uh, that represent the two ends of the spectrum. Uh, Dr. Mark Beck, I'm going to start with Mark first. He is the president of Georgia State University. Uh, somehow trained as a statistician, and now here you are. I wonder if you <laughs> imagine this would ever happen to you. Uh, Dr. Beck has had a distinguished career in biostatistics and public health scientists, as a public health scientist, and most of his professorial career was a member of the faculty at the Department of Biostatistics at the University of Michigan. As a first-generation college student who began his educational career at a community college, Dr. Beck is personally and professionally committed to ensuring, ensuring that students of all economic backgrounds succeed. In a 10-year period, the university's graduation rates have increased by 22%. Dr. Becker was named one of America's 10 most innovative university presidents. That was in 2015, and the university was ranked the second most innovative university in the country by US, US, uh, by US News and World Report magazine in 2019, so this year, second most innovative university in the country. Uh, needless to say, we are proud uh, that we call you neighbors. Uh, Georgia State leads the nation in eliminating disparities in, in graduation rates based on race, ethnicity, or income and as one of the most diverse universities in America is first in the nation among nonprofit institutions in graduating African-American students. Mark, we are so glad that you're with Thank us you. this morning. I wonder if I could share this. Uh, so permeates to my right. Um, Jeffrey, the former rector here, if you're here, not here from All Saints, said you, do, you don't need a youth minister at All Saints. You have Coma Yates and Carol Kimmel. <laughs> After that, <laughs> it's all covered. Um, if you have a sixth grader in your life, you'll know that Coma, a member of our parish for many years, uh, in so many ways, um, hits it out of the park Sunday by Sunday that children leave that time renewed and uh, if Hank Harris's emails are anything to go by, your partner in crime, uh, the adults leave surprised. Um, the Atlanta Speech School was started in 1938 by Catherine Ham, whose son Benjamin had hearing loss. Some of you may know this story. It was, it was started to help other children who were deaf or hard of hearing or had speech disorders help them to learn to speak. Today, the school is the nation's most comprehensive center for language and literacy, 
comprising of the Rollins Center for Language and Literacy and its Cox Campus Online professional learning platform and community, a clinic offering four therapeutic and academic services and summer programs. Each division of the Atlanta Speech School shares one common mission, to help each person develop his or her full potential through language and literacy. And as I shared, Coma, a parishioner here, much beloved in this parish and well beyond. It is a, a great delight that you're with us this morning for this forum. Thank you, Coma. Now, I need a home crowd advantage going <laughs> up against Mark, that's for sure. <laughs> well, I, as you can imagine, the gentlemen on either side of me are not used to, uh, uh, well used to speaking in public. Uh, and I said, we've got four prepared questions. Who knows where they'll go with their <laughs> answers. Um, but I do hope there'll be time for you uh, to ask questions as we uh, spend this time together. Each of you can look back on several years of success at both ends of the educational spectrum in terms of age when we think about access to quality education for all sorts of backgrounds. What's been most important to you personally in what your respective institutions have achieved over the past decade? Okay, come, we'll, we'll start with you, come if we could. Well, I have the real blessing and privilege of being at a place that um, for 82 years we opened as a free school um, our founder, not her words exactly, said, if my, if my son has a voice because I have the socioeconomic means to move to St. Louis for him to acquire it, um, then I'll spend my life making sure that every child has a voice. And so for 82 years, we've never turned away a child because of financial limitation. So the equity um, of a child's voice and every child has a voice is our DNA. So as long, and it's incredible that we can stick with a mission 82 years old, and if we just keep our focus on that goal, then you know, our ability and our work, I'm really struck by Mark's work, as we'll talk about as we go forward. Um, Mark's work is here so many times, he's beating the odds for students who are coming to Georgia State where the odds have been stacked against them. Mark talked about how his students come to Georgia State with more grit than other institutions because what it's taken to get there. The speech school believes in our work on campus is to beat the odds on campus for our children who neurobiologically are gonna struggle to read. Beyond the campus, our responsibility is to change the odds for all our children. And Mark shouldn't have to be doing this repair work or repair, you know, um, trying to you know, rearrange deck chairs on the Titanic because of a broken educational system, we should all be working to change the odds, and that's what I'm proud of our school doing. And with, with the last 10 years particularly, Kuma, have there been new developments that, have, that really stand out for the speech school? Um, well, probably the most important thing in the last 20 years, you know, for Gutenberg invented the printing press in 1440, <laughs> and up until that time, we, don't have a, we still don't have a single gene in our brain or in our body to read. It is a novel function of the modern brain. Um, for 550 years, roughly, we had no idea what to do with his technology, but in the last 20 years, the scientists have proven unequivocally what has to be the adult behavior in children's lives from the last trimester of pregnancy through age nine to construct a reading brain. They aren't developed, they aren't inspired, they're constructed by intentional adult behaviors. Um, now, our only question is access to that science, application of that science, 
Right now it's being applied on, by a basis of zip code, race, and ethnicity. So to defeat that, in the last 10 years what we've done, we've created an online, free online campus to train healthcare providers through elementary school teachers on what they have to do to break that cycle. So today we have a free online campus thanks to our fellow parishioners, the Kennedys and the Cox Foundation, the Woodrow Foundation. We have a free online campus where we're training 80,000 teachers in 42 countries and all 50 states on what has to happen to eradicate illiteracy. So that's... So in February 2010, so nearly 10 years ago, the university undertook a strategic planning process that would literally set our course for the next decade. And it's hard to believe that decade's about to come to a close. Uh, we need to do it all over again. Uh, but through that process, we arrived as one of our five goals that we would establish a national model demonstrating that students from all backgrounds could be successful um, at high rates. And so basically the, the, the beat the national odds. Uh, what I'm most proud of is we've done exactly what Comer said, is we've stuck to that goal, and I've stuck to all five of our goals, but that goal in particular, day in and day out for more than a decade now, and basically transforming the institution. So what the work that Georgia State has done is not making a, a change here and a, and a change there, it's literally transforming how the student experiences the university. And what I'm most proud of out of this is not that we've done it for our students, which we're incredibly proud of, but it has literally changed the national discourse on what's possible. If you go through 2005, 2006, 2007, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, 2015, 16, 17, uh, myself, the person who leads this work for us, Dr. Timothy Rennick, um, and our provost at the time, Dr. Risa Palm, were continually told in national convenings that the data that we were, the results that we were producing, the results that we were talking about were not possible. That it is not possible to eliminate the, the, the education disparities. It is not possible for African Americans to graduate at the same level as white students. It, it was just complete nonsense. But with the point they were making was, universities have been trying to do this for decades and they had not succeeded. And the reason they had not succeeded is they were working at the margins of the institution and they were convinced that most of the problems were in the classroom. When the reality is, is particularly for low-income students, and students come from lower-performing school districts, meaning school districts where high school graduation rates are low, um, standardized test scores are low, uh, the, the academic classroom is not the only challenge those students face. At Georgia State, if a student does drop out, he or she's more seven times more likely to drop out for economic reasons, for financial reasons. They have very fragile financial lives. So it's, it's a, another recurring theme with Comer is you have to deal with the fragility of the economics of the students as well as the academic challenges. So, you know, we have now eliminated all disparities in graduation rates based on race, ethnicity, or income. We're the only institution to date to have done that without limiting access. A few other institutions have basically done it by becoming more selective in choosing who they choose, choosing students from higher income families. Um, but. We're extremely excited to see the progress that's being made nationally. Uh, we at Georgia State get lots of requests to come visit to see what we do and how we do it. Um, and we, we may or may not dive into some of those details later, uh, but we've hosted nearly 400 institutions at Georgia State now who've come in and spent at least a day with us. Um, some have been back multiple times. Um, some have brought their presidents multiple times, uh, but it's also been representatives and delegations from Russia, 
South Africa, Germany, New Zealand, uh, as in the, those four in the last two years. Uh, the country of New Zealand is actually trying to reform their entire system of higher education around our model uh, because they have disparities issues having to do with indigenous or aboriginal populations, challenges they face. Um, South Africa institutions, particularly from Johannesburg and Pretoria, are looking at what we're doing because, again, they have significant disparities and legacy issues that they deal with. So it's, it's what we've done for our students matters a lot to us, but the fact that we're able to influence the national and international conversations about what needs to be done to create justice and equality is what we're most proud of. I wonder if we could talk about the achievement gap at the point of entry. Uh, I'd, I'd love to hear from both of you, at the age that you received them, at the stage in life that you received them, uh, and noting that for you, Mark, it can be, that, that could be, it's quite a wide range, potentially. Well, any, anywhere between 16 and 85 to 90. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's pretty wide. Uh, <laughs> We all, every year we graduate somebody over the age of 80 and, and not, not atypically somebody at 90 years of age or so. <laughs> if you're 62 or older, you can attend Georgia State for free. I'll just throw that out there. You, you can meet him afterwards if you wish to enroll for any uh, possibilities. But um, yep. I wonder if we could talk about, at that point of entry, what, to help us understand a little bit more of what you attribute, what the, whether it's the science or what the research shows. How, what is that achievement gap attributable to? Attributable, attributable to? Uh, well, I think a, a place to start is to try to have us as a country change the term achievement gap that's typically used to opportunity gap. Because everything is decided by who's had access to educational opportunity. In the South, it's a, a horrid story of denied access to educational opportunity. And that opportunity actually starts in the last trimester of birth um, we're born with 100 billion neurons in our brains, and based on the language interactions and social bondings with parents, we're developing um, about a million synapses per second in our brains in different portions of the brain, depending on what those interactions look like. Cruelly, brutally, for 400 years, we have forced African-American parents to exalt their children's compliance and obedience in the South rather than their critical thinking, um, their executive functioning because the disproportionate dangers of non-compliance. They've been forced, their loving words have to be to stop that, put that down, because the dangers along the way that will be demand, that will, in which they'll be placed. But to get a sense of the achievement gap and where it starts, we think of education about the, our purpose when we work with children is for children to be on a trajectory to be able to decide their own futures and make the greatest difference possible in the lives of others, to live their lives as their best selves. Well, the first thing you have to do, of course, is to give adults in their lives the agency to be their best selves with children. But let's start with the achievement gap, and I'll switch over to give you an understanding of, of the power of what Mark is doing. So the, the new National Assessment Educational Progress Scores for reading proficiency in fourth grade just came out. Frederick Douglass said 150 years ago, once you learn to read, you'll be forever free. The path toward being able to decide your own future, to go to Georgia State, to be a panther on Wall Street, is dependent upon the ability to read at, at the end of third grade because that's when the brain becomes less plastic. 
So let's talk about where we are with our children in the Atlanta public schools based on the NAEP report that just came out. And I want you to just think to yourself, please don't call it an answer. What percentage of our white children in the Atlanta public schools, just come up with a number in your head, are reading proficiently by the end of third grade? So come up with a number in your head. What percentage of the African-American children in the Atlanta public schools are reading proficiently at the end of third grade? You got those two numbers? Hispanic children, that's the third group. Now, children not on free and reduced lunch, what percentage of the children, and that's about 10% of the children in APS, what percentage of children in Atlanta public schools not on free and reduced lunch? In other words, they live in the finger bowl section, as my dad used to call it. <laughs> Some of you are old enough for that. And children who have been denied access to educational opportunity for sometimes 400 years on free and reduced lunch, what percentage of them read proficiently? So, white children, throw out a number. What percentage of white children in APS read proficiently? They're on a path to being forever free. What percentage? 80%. Anybody higher than 80? 90. Anybody lower than 80? What's the number? 65. Anybody lower than 65? Okay, what's the percentage of African-American children you said are reading proficiently in APS? 45? What's, I heard 20. Anybody lower than 20? 15. All right, Hispanic children, what'd you say? 20, all right, let's go to not on free and reduced lunch. Okay, on free and reduced lunch. 10, all right, here are the numbers. White children in Atlanta public schools, and know that the average white child in Atlanta public schools lives in a home that has a value of $600,000 compared to an African-American child lives in a home with a value of $35,000. But it has nothing to do with poverty. Illiteracy causes poverty. Poverty is not caused illiteracy. It's about who has opportunity. The number is 76% of white children in the Atlanta public schools read proficiently. 16% of African-American children read proficiently. 23% of Hispanic children. Children not on free and reduced lunch, it's 70%. For children on free and reduced lunch, it's 15%. So, could you give uh, Mark another round of applause for what he's doing? <laughs> and can we all maybe make a vow that we'll never go to another community organization event where one person who, who has beaten the odds gets a standing ovation for beating the odds and we're all not humiliated and ashamed of ourselves that we forced her to beat those odds and we hadn't all worked to change those odds. Okay, I'm going to take Comer's last point as my launching point because that's actually one of the diseases of American higher education. So I said before that, you know, that we were told that the results that we were producing, which are now not only accepted but widely lauded across the country, universities across the country up until that point where we really pushed the data would bring out a student and say, here's this student from abject poverty and now they've done this and isn't it amazing and we've changed their lives. And they would have that one student and they'd beat their chest and they say, that's our success. That was, that was one of the diseases of American higher education, which was to talk about the exception rather than what is the norm. Uh, in terms of what I want you to remember today actually has nothing to do about Georgia State, but it completely reinforces what Comer's told you. The SAT test or the ACT test is one of the most regressive instruments in America today. 
The SAT test is a better predictor of the zip code that you have grown up in than your academic ability. It is more correlated with family income than anything else. In spite of that, U.S. News and World Report and universities all over the country tout the SAT scores of their entering freshmen every year. What they're telling you is who they're excluding. If they tell you their SAT scores are really high, what they're telling you is they are not including low-income students. They're not, they do not have a diverse student body. So for Georgia State, when we look at where we are and decisions we've made consciously, again, going back to 2010, you may have remembered something called the Great Recession. Uh, we actually had a critical moment in preparing for the fall class of 2010. Uh, budgets were down, uh, the state legislature had cut more than $40 million out of our budget. Uh, we had laid off uh, over 150 people, which is a euphemism for fired. Uh, we had basically done a lot of deep cutting and we were looking to the fall. So my CFO wants the largest freshman class possible because that means more tuition. It will help us not have to cut any deeper. Uh, my provost at the time wants the highest SAT scores possible because that's what everybody brags about in American higher education. And the question came to me. Uh, we've got about 150 students here, plus or minus. Uh, do we admit them or don't we? So the, um, this proportion, this group of students um, is disproportionately African-American. And so the question comes to me is, are we going to admit these students or aren't we? And, the, and I asked one question, and I actually turned to Dr. Rennick, who leads our student success work, and said, if we admit them, will they graduate? And he says, yeah, they'll graduate. They've taken rigorous high school curriculums. They've gotten good grades. The reason that they're not admissible under our curtain criteria is they don't have the SAT scores. And the answer was, admit them. And we've never looked back. We basically have downweighted the SAT score, recognized that we're not going to hold people back based on the neighborhood that they grew up in or, who, or what family they were born into. Um, today, <laughs> today, Georgia State actually um, offers an opportunity we didn't have in 2010, basically a pathway uh, to a degree for literally any uh, high school student, whether a graduate or having a GED. Um, and that is in 2016, uh, the Board of Regents had us consolidate with Georgia Perimeter College. Georgia Perimeter College has five campuses, um, Alpharetta, Dunwoody, Clarkston, Decatur, and Newton. Uh, each is very different in terms of if you think about those different locales in the suburbs. Uh, the student body overall looks like Georgia State in terms of race and ethnicity, uh, but the campuses, say Alpharetta, is very different than Clarkston or, or Decatur. Clarkston is a refugee resettlement community, highly international. Um, students with a lot of their own challenges uh, in terms of uh, whether the family has been victims of violence, uh, torture, or basically just trying to escape oppression wherever they've come from into Clarkston, as well as students who grew up in those areas. Uh, but today, if you are a basically, the students we've always admitted at Georgia State, because we are not a open admissions institution for bachelor's degrees at Georgia State. Uh, we are what's called a research university in the university system here, which means you basically have to be a B-level or higher student having taken a r rigorous curriculum. So we're very diverse, but we still get to select off those students who are academically ready to come to college. Uh, that's why many of their challenges are financial as opposed to academic. 
Perimeter is an access institution. Basically, if you wanna go to college, you can enroll at one of our perimeter campuses and we have pathways to degrees for you and they're literally called pathways. Here's what you need to do. You have smaller classes, you have much more contact with faculty than you have a big research university. So we basically provide multiple on-ramps. Uh, but that is actually not new. Uh, Georgia State, historically, about a quarter of our undergraduates, maybe some of the people in this room, like me, started at a community college and particularly started at Georgia Perimeter College. Historically, that's been a quarter of our undergraduate population since forever. It's just now Perimeter is part of the institution and everything is much more seamless. If a student applies to Georgia State, she or he is going to be admitted. It's just a question, do they start downtown in a bachelor's program or do they start on one of our perimeter campuses in an associate's or certificate program with a pathway onto a bachelor's? Thank you both. I just wanna say what if, I think you can hear me out in the lobby. Please do come in if you wish to. There are seats as always in church at the front, uh, but there are seats by the grand piano. You're most welcome and if you're at the back and you don't have a seat, there's probably uh, 15 or so, maybe more 20 seats still available in the hall. Um, I wonder what, what strikes me that's just um, so impressive about your leadership and the institutions that you lead is that you're facing this vast set of problems that, that I think often just elicit that sense of powerlessness. How on earth could we do something as mm -hmm. complex and um, sort of deeply rooted as this? And you've gone to specifics and you've been able to achieve the goals you set out. Briefly looking to the future, whether it's the next decade or more, um, what would you name as the most uh, achievable and important work, if, you've, if, you, if you're at that point, uh, in the state of Georgia, whether that's with your own institutions or what we might do as a state, in terms of the 10 years ahead of us? Well, I think the big thing is to pay attention to the science and to train for us teachers uh, in a way where they have a chance to apply the science. Georgia State happily is doing great work in the, in the field of education, but Russ Harden, who is a member here, uh, heading the Woodruff Foundation, recognized 20 years ago that our colleges of education in the country were failing us and not having teachers go into the field totally unprepared to meet the needs of their children. Uh, one of the universities here in the state, the people in special ed department, she said the only people that our teachers can teach are the 36% of children who aren't on free introduced lunch. They are not having access to the science as pre-service teachers in our colleges of education. So that's a place to start. The main thing is just to apply the science, as I said, and understand it. I mean, we could see radical changes in literacy scores within a nine month period if there was universal adoption of the science. Um, one of the things we're focused on is the marriage and, and with Dr. Becker's background in public health, marrying public health with education and understand the intersection between brain science and academia. For example, one of the things we're doing, and I'll just to give an example and then let Mark talk. So we understand again, we used to think that phonemes, the 44 sounds of the English language were taught to children in, in pre-K and kindergarten. Those 44 sounds you end up attaching to the 26 letters and that's how you start reading or at least decoding. Dr. Patricia Cool in 2007 discovered that phonemes actually start attaching when the auditory channel is complete 
in the third trimester of pregnancy. So mom's voice is building this phonemic map in the baby if she's using the high-pitched sounds or parentese to make it through the fluid in the womb to reach the, inner, the outer cells of the cochlea so the baby can start attaching those sounds. So again, now we know those phonemes are built, which is really the DNA of language in these first 18 months. So one of the things we're doing, we've trained along with Grady Hospital, all 1,500 people in Grady's expecting and delivery units on how to model and coach parents to be their baby's conversational partner, how to provide the baby with early language nutrition necessary for early healthy brain development. So Grady now has redefined a healthy delivery to mean a baby who leaves the hospital with, ba with parents who can provide her with that language nutrition. And again, we're in many instances working with parents who haven't been able to control a single thing in their lives for generation. And the message to these parents consistent with the science is, you control the most precious part of your life, your child's future, and talking with your baby makes your baby's brain smarter. And all the agency that's been denied you for generations to be able to engage with your baby is now in your heart and hands. And so bringing that science to every transaction, starting with the construction of the reading brain is, is what we're trying to do. And we could go on up from there. We're getting killed by imprecision, though, just last thing. We're handing out brochures at the birthing hospital, say, talk with your baby, or we give babies a bib that says, talk with me, <laughs> without giving any kind of capacity or agency or authority to parents to do it. In preschool, we have a quality-rated system that has absolutely nothing in Georgia to do with healthy brain development, and we say that if you're in a quality-rated center, you're on a path to literacy. There's no correlation whatsoever between those two things. And then elementary school, um, we're engaged in activities around reading that has to do with comprehension with kids who can't even decode, and that's called the milestones. Just an incredible recipe for disaster and trauma and um, delegitimacy change all that and it's not that hard I mean it's not there's no sense of powerlessness it's a matter of will um, or whether we're just going to say enough's enough okay so Comer's work will make our work easier <laughs> uh, but I want to ground what I'm going to set as the goal for 10 years and just a, a few small numbers uh, so first off of the people who started college this fall only about 54% of them will have a bachelor's degree six years later in the United States of America. I can say that with absolute confidence because it's been that way for as long as I can remember. Those numbers barely move up or down one or two points, cohort to cohort. Uh, if you want to read about some of the challenges, David Kerp, a professor at UC Berkeley, also writes from the New York Times, has a book out called The College Dropout Scandal. Think about all the adults walking around this country who have some college education, but have not, not a degree. Roughly 46% of the people who try to start college. Now, to ground that in socioeconomic status, for the top quarter of America, it's over 80% of people will accomplish a bachelor's degree by their early to mid-20s. It's basically in upper-income families, 90% of them go to college, 90% of them finish. In the bottom quartile, the least financially um, advantage, or the, the bottom 25% of the socioeconomic stratum in this country, that number has been 6 to 8% forever. That number has not moved, whereas the number has gone up for uh, anybody above the median income, they've seen the percentage of college attainment go up consistently year over year. So where we want to be as a university is we want to be at, a, at if you start at Georgia State, that 100% of our students will graduate. 
uh, when we announced our, again, I mentioned our strategic planning in 2010, when we finalized the plan, we had set a target for students starting with us, graduating from us at 60%, and we're closing in on that. Um, and I'm, I'm gonna go back to that number in a second. That's well above the 54%, which includes all of America. But I told Dr. Rennick at that point, he goes, that's gonna be a hard, that's gonna be hard to hit. Nobody's done that before with a student population like ours. And I said, it doesn't matter. The goal is 100%. That's just an intermediate goal. That's where we're going to get to. So today, if you start at Georgia State, within six years, 80% will have graduated with a bachelor's degree, either from us or from some other institution. That's the other thing, students are mobile. I was in the New York Times about 20 years ago. Typical student in the United States of America that starts college attends three institutions before they graduate. Uh, whether it's uh, transferring between institutions, uh, we get lots of students coming back to Georgia State who go off to Auburn or Alabama or Florida State, uh, particularly young males that major in football and fraternity and forget to go to class. Uh, <laughs> there's, there's no shortage of those around, uh, but there's, so students move around. But 80, over 80% 80 of the students who start college at Georgia State will get a degree, but the goal is 100%. That's where we want to get to, and that's where we're headed. Uh, but what will really matter, again, is we, we've had all these visiting institutions, uh, but we're actually working towards a much more um, intensive experience for other institutions, working much more deeply with them, so that the work that we're doing actually takes root in, in deep transformational ways at other institutions. There's um, only a handful of institutions that have gone in and literally change structurally inconsistent uh, uh, in, in with our methodology as opposed to doing just tweaks here and there getting marginal gains as opposed to transformational gains. So the goal is to literally train, change how institutions in this country and beyond uh, st structure the experiences for their students so st all students are successful up to their abilities as opposed to up to the opportunities they were um, given at, at birth and through the early ages, early ages of their lives. So one of the core reasons why we have this series for the city and uh, why it's such a, a privilege for us to share this conversation with you both is that we want to be a church that learns how to be the church by studying the city. By listening to the city, we learn how to fulfill our own mission. It's, it's a context-based theology, if you like. So I wanna give you a free reign. That was, my f that was the open pass. To offer to this community, to us, what our part could be, what part we can play in coming alongside you, uh, coming alongside the people of this city and this state, um, such that we might strive for a, a future in education where there is uh, greater access to quality education for all. So what, what would you lay down as a challenge for us? Well, I, I had a lay, I have, I'm gonna change the question as you suggest. Because, <laughs> uh, I, Prerogative I, of the person with the, the microphone. I had the challenge <laughs> laid down by this church uh, almost 20 years ago um, by Anne-Marie Sparrow. Um, and uh, Elvira and Jenny and others who were working at C.W. Hill Elementary School, um, tutoring children there and the best reading program. We have so many reading programs right now that don't follow the science. We have so many things going on, on the west side that are so harmful to children that are being described as helpful to children. And they're only adding baggage to the 400 years of history and forces against our children because their imprecision is gonna draw more inferences against our children and their parents. But, but a place 
um, in which there was equity and there was the science. Um, Anne Marie, right at the time of the National Reading Panel's discovery, um, had All Saints in this extraordinary literacy program at C.W. Hill Elementary School. And I learned my lesson from Anne Marie when I got a call from her and her colleagues with five young boys there, all of whom were repeating third grade and none of whom could read. And um, one boy in particular, Andreas, was the most angry child I've ever met in my life. And his anger was with himself. Um, instead, where it should have been with the rest of us who had cheated him out of his future. Um, amazingly, through Anne Marie's work and a partnership we had, he ended up being Citizen of the Year just a few years later at Inman Middle School. He's a teacher himself now. Um, but again, that goes back to Marx. Let's, I mean, no, Anne Marie, um, it, it was about, as President Lincoln said, you know, the Civil War was about to afford all an unfettered chance unfettered start and a fair chance in the race of life. I'm so sick of talking about percentages of children when right now we have the ability to eradicate illiteracy with the same ability we had to eradicate polio um, through Dr. Salk's vaccine by applying the science. So rather than talking about what the church could do for our work, um, any kind of integrity demands me to talk about what the church um, gave to me. I'm going to start off with saying you have a huge head start because you value all of God's children from the beginning. That's step number one. Basically, you see everybody as a person of value, a person of worth. Uh, everything Comer said, absolutely. What I would add to that is I would ask that you take elections and your ability to vote very seriously. The Atlanta School Board and Atlanta Public Schools is critically important to be being able to get the kind of changes that we need. And I would um, hazard to say that uh, the children of this city have not been well served for what, far too long. We need to make sure that the people that are running for public office who have influence over what happens in these schools um, actually have the children's best interest in heart, uh, that that's why they want to serve, and that they actually understand what's the best interest. One of the hardest things, and, and Comer actually alluded to this, he didn't use these words, but he alluded to it, is you've gotta be a contrarian when you take on these issues. If there's an obvious right answer to solving these problems, it's not the right answer. The obvious right answers have all been tried. They don't work. What you have to have is a fidelity for the data. You've gotta actually be willing to look at the evidence and you have to hold the people, whether it's myself in my job, the people that work with me and work with our students at our university or in elected office in the Atlanta, um, City School Atlanta Public School Board or whatever, held accountable to what is evidence-based, what works, and see that that is what we do. Because if that's not what we do, we'll be back to what I told you before. Universities across the country will bring out a single student, see here's, it works, the student has this great, amazing life. But at the same time, it's, it's um, thousands of students have fallen through the cracks. The same thing happens every day in pre-K, in kindergarten, in K through 12, because we do not have evidence-based practice in pre-K, kindergarten, first grade through 12th grade, all across this city, all across this state. And until we solve that problem, we're not gonna get, we're not gonna solve these issues and we're not gonna actually have a level playing field so that all of God's children are able to ach achieve to their highest abilities.
So I'm going to reverse the order here. I'm not going to invite you to ask questions to be answered. I, if you have questions you wish to be answered, I'm going to invite you to do that after we finish in four minutes. But if you have a statement that you'd like to make, not a speech, but a statement you'd like to make, um, to, to offer uh, inspiration to this community, we do indeed have an Anne-Marie Sparrow, but there could be others, and there could be others in our community. So I just want to invite you to offer something that people can take away with them this morning. Good morning. I just wanted to say that I'm a proud card-carrying member of a Georgia State ID, and <laughs> I've attended classes at Clarkston campus, and I've absolutely loved it. Thank you. And I'm 69 years old. <laughs> <laughs> Good morning to everyone. I would like to say that my coming to America is because of Georgia State. I obtained a scholarship to come and study at Georgia State in the year 2000. And ever since, I've been here in America. And because of Georgia State, I'm a proud parishioner of All Saints Episcopal. <laughs> All my four kids were baptized here and they sing in the choir and we are proud to have Miss Kimmel as we are <laughs> proud to have it. And also my family have all migrated to the US and it's because of Georgia State. I currently work at the CDC but I lecture part-time at Georgia State. And my older sister who is also came to US because of Georgia State also currently lectures at Georgia State. So, and then she comes to All Saints as well. So I'm happy to let you know that Georgia State has done great things and we appreciate it. And we always thank Georgia State and All Saints. We, I came from Ghana, thank you. <laughs> Time for a couple more. Hi, I have a thought and a statement. The thought is that there have been a number of teacher strikes lately across the country and concerns coming from the teachers themselves. And the, granted, we could talk about salaries and wages and we can talk about um, you know, due process and things like that, but I also wanted to remind people that a history of unions uh, is that they're also serving working conditions. And to a certain extent, the composition of your student body is also a working condition. And if we thought differently about uh, the fact that you have these statistics that are bearing out massive inequalities, then the teachers who are teaching in excessively underprivileged back, uh, background students should be given additional resources or maybe smaller class sizes, and that would actually kind of redistribute resources to where they are most needed. That's one. <laughs> and the, the last is a, a quote that I keep with me in my head and my heart very often coming from the former superintendent of schools in Nashville, Tennessee, who once said, I used to think that the best thing that I could do for my son was to give him the best education possible. And I now think the best thing I can do for my son is to give my neighbor's child the best education possible. I'm a faculty member at the second most innovative university <laughs> in the United States. <laughs> And I'm a graduate 
of the number one most innovative liberal arts college in the United States. And I want to point out that one of the most shocking and non-intuitive things to do in the 19th century was to educate women. And one of, mo one of the most shocking and educationally outre things to do in the 20th century has been to educate those who are below the class that is normally educated. And I can testify as a Georgia State faculty member as well as a women's college graduate that one's education is richer and more significant to the person and to the country when we transgress and take these steps. The classrooms at Georgia State are enormously richer because of the diversity of ages, the diversity of backgrounds, the diversity of ambitions that all these students bring. Those students who sit in the classroom, none of them would be as richly and as deeply educated without the presence of the others. And that, I think, is Georgia State's greatest gift to be able to persuade people of the importance of this truth. Thank you. I'm actually going to call it there if I can, just because I have another gig at 11.15 and it could be putting <laughs> the pressure. Let us take with us then the Melinda Snow transgression principle. How might you as a parishioner here help this church transgress in terms of joining others, being a provocative voice, whatever it happens to be, serving Christ with our hands and our feet and our hearts, in this city, for this city. Um, we've been asking ourselves, what on earth could that mean? And one of the great gifts, and I thank you profoundly, Como and Mark, for being with us this morning, is that you've offered us an insight into your work and also into our work as a church. And it seems to me that at All Saints, the best things have happened when the parishioners have stepped forward and said, we should do this. And there's a, a longer form uh, report or summary of how uh, Marianne's uh, uh, encouragement for us to get engaged said, let's stop talking about it, let's start doing it. So I encourage you to help us lead in this city. Uh, and I do encourage you not only to join me in thanking our guest speakers this morning. <laughs> stay and ask your own questions and you have special dispensation to show up to church if you've not been yet at the peace but please do ask your questions thank you